0: Father, Your Word is to us a tremendous source of joy and encouragement and light, and in a world that is filled with lies, we are thankful to You for giving us the truth and for putting it in our own hands and even in our own tongue, our own language, so that we can understand it. And then we thank You for doing the wor- gracious work of Your Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to it, Now we've come to know the truth and understand the truth, and we see in Your Word that which is true. We pray that You would open our eyes today to it, that You would encourage our hearts together. Give us a sense, our God, of our smallness and your greatness, and may you be glorified through the unfolding of your word, which is truth and brings us light. We ask these things in Christ's name, for his glory and for his sake. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 9, and we're going to read together the first five verses of John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day night is coming when no one can work while i am in the world i am the light of the world now, last week we got halfway through that answer we covered to the end of verse 3 and and the, we looked at we've looked at the question that the disciples asked which is a, a massive question with all kinds of hidden assumptions behind it and then we have seen how Jesus deals with that question and sort of pushes off the table all of the assumptions, corrects them, and shows to the disciples that not only have they asked the wrong question, they have assumed entirely wrong things. And he sort of dismisses entirely their presuppositions and all that they held to be true and points them from the cause of this man's blindness to the purpose behind it. And in verse 3, that answer, there is a tremendous amount of theology. And what we saw last week is that you and I cannot possibly make sense of tragedy evil, affliction, infirmity, things like a man born blind, unless we have room in our theology for the glory of God. There has to be room at the center of that understanding for the glory of God, and that has to be central to our understanding of it and central to any answer that we give. Ultimately, all evil, all infirmity, all tragedy, everything bad that happens, has must have as its aim and as its goal in some fashion, at some point, the glory of God. Because if that is not the end of God's allowing evil to come into the world or allowing things to happen like men being born blind, if the glory of God is not the aim of it, then you and I can truly say that evil is senseless. In fact, I would I would propose to you that anything that happens that does not have as its goal or its aim the manifold glory of God is a senseless event. Because if it does not have God's glory as its aim... Then it really cannot last or have any purpose beyond this life, can it? It's going to be temporary, at best. It's going to be temporary. So we have to have room for the glory of God in that. Imagine the alternative. I mean, honestly, imagine that the disciples had said, "Master, Rabbi, who was who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind?" And imagine that Jesus had said, "You know what? We really can't know. And in fact, if God could have stopped it, He would have stopped it. Uh, God is just as heartbroken by this as you and I are." And and we just don't even know where this is all going, and we don't know what God's going to do, in it and it really doesn't matter. It's just, it's just an evil thing, and we've got to deal with it. Imagine if that had been his answer. I mean, how hopeless would you and I be? We would truly be left without any hope. But if as Christians we can say, look, I may not understand why this is happening, why God has either caused this or allowed this to happen, but this I can know for sure, that God is aiming in this and intending in this, my good and his glory. And listen, as Christians, you and I need to get into our heads that those two things are never at odds. Never at odds. God never has to say to Himself, should I work out of this something for my glory, or should I work out of this something for Jim's good? He has never had to ask ask that question. Think of it this way. When God does you good, does that glorify Himself? When God does you good? When God shows kindness to you, a sinner, and does something for you that is good is that glorifying to God? You and I would have to affirm, yes, it is. When He demonstrates His goodness, that is Him glorifying Himself. If God does you a lot of good, does that bring Him a lot of glory? It does. If God does you an infinite amount of good, and it is eternal good, does that not bring Him an infinite amount of eternal glory? It does, doesn't it? So God never has to ask the question, With this evil thing strikes, should I do Jim good out of this, or should I bring myself glory out of this? Here is the wonderful thing about God's plan. That which is most for my eternal good, even though I may not understand it, that which is most for my eternal good, is most for God's eternal glory, so that the two are inseparably connected. For him to bring glory to himself is my ultimate good, and for him to do ultimate and eternal good to me is for his infinite and eternal glory. That's how you have to think about it. That's why Jesus said to him, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. This man was born blind to be a canvas upon which God could display his works in this man and bring glory to himself. And if that is the case, then that evil and that infirmity, that affliction is not wasted in the least. It is an infinite and eternal good that God should glorify himself by doing good to us and allowing these things to happen to us so that he might glorify himself. That is for his glory. That is for our good. Well, that was half the answer to the question. Now we open up verses 4 and five. And as we go through verses 4 and 5, we're going to see that this is connected to verse 3. Verse 3 kind of introduces us to the theology behind it. As we go through verses 4 and 5, we're going to notice two things. We're going to notice a work to which we are called, and then we're going to notice a time which we are allotted. A work to which we are called, and a time that we are allotted. Verse 4 is the work to which we are called. We must work the works of Him who sent me. And then look at the time that we are allotted. As long as it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work, while I am in the world I am in the light of the world. Now, something that struck me this last week was how quickly Jesus goes past the answer to their question onto something that at first seems like, it seems like something entirely foreign or it seems like an entirely different subject, but it's not. What was the answer? What was the question that they asked? Who sinned this man or his parents? Now, behind that is assumptions. Behind that is a question that we would hope to have Jesus spend a chapter or two, or even better yet, three or four. Chapters discussing the answer to that question. Why do evil things happen? What is the purpose behind this? What caused it? Why has it been allowed? How is God bringing Himself glory out of this? That's really what's behind their question. And we would might wish that Jesus would spend three chapters answering that. So that we could get into the theological ramifications of this. And what's behind it? What's at the base of this? And who's right? Calvinists or Arminians? And our glory and God's good. And the eternal purpose of all of creation. And all of, we've, three chapters would have been great. What does Jesus give us? One... Sentence. was not this man. It was not his parents. He was born this way for the glory of God. Next question. And now he goes on to the work, right? The issue is not what caused this infirmity. The issue really for Jesus and the disciples is, what must we do in the presence of this infirmity? He's not interested so much in having a theological conversation and nitpicking all of the minutia of what's going on and why it's going on. His real issue is there is work that we must be doing, now let's get to the work. It's, it's interesting to me how quickly Jesus goes past their question, pushes it all off the table, corrects them, but moves right on to the real issue, and the real issue is this. I have a work to do, and the time is short, and it is an urgent work, and so we must be about it. So let's get about the business of being about the work. right? You and I should never, and there's application for in this for us, you and I should never sacrifice doing the work of God for the sake of wrangling over theological issues. We need to be careful. Have you ever met people like that? They can sit down with you over a cup of coffee and they can talk theology and talk issues and talk doctrine and talk this and nitpick that and fine tooth comb this and split these hairs and those hairs. But when it comes to actually serving the Lord and doing anything of profit to anybody else and being of, of service or encouragement or love and showing affection or anything to the people of God, they are nowhere to be seen. They're not attached to any church. They're not submitted to any authority. uh, They're they're not taking the time to get to know people and find out what's going on in people's lives and be an encouragement to them and a support and praying for people. No, no, no. They want to sit down they want to talk about all of these grand theological subjects. Look, you know me well enough to know that I think it's important that we be careful and that uh, uh, that we cut our theology precisely. That is important. That is why we have one of the longest doctrinal statements you will ever find in any church that you ever visit everywhere. The thing is reams of paper long. Why? Because we want to be precise in what we believe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about thinking that knowing those things and having all of that hammered out is a substitute for doing the work that God has called us to do. We get into error when we think that the work of God is wrangling about doctrine and not just getting in and doing what God has called us to do. Thinking that we can substitute doing the work with just knowing about the work being content with that Charles Spurgeon said this it will be much better for us to do the work of him that sent us than to be judging divine providence of our or our fellow man it is ours not to speculate but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of the gospel let us then be less inquisitive and more practical less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes End quote love how Spurgeon says that Spurgeon was a theological genius that man was articulate he was he was a fine cutter Theology uh, theology mattered dispersion. It ought to matter to us. But let's not think that we have to choose one or the other. Right? There's a theological issue here. This is the answer to it. Now let's get about the work that God has called us to do and be doing that work. I want you to notice the beginning of verse 4, how Jesus uses the term, we must be about the work that I've been sent to do, instead of I must be about the work that we've been sent to do. That's interesting to me, and I noticed it, because all the way through John chapter 6, actually 5, 5, 6, 7, and 8, Jesus spoke of himself being the one who was sent and himself doing the one, being the one who worked the works of the Father. But here in the presence of the disciples and this blind man, Jesus says we, not I. Even though he is the one who does the miracle. He doesn't ask the disciples to pitch in, right? Lend me your advice, lend me your help, lend me your assistance. He doesn't ask the disciples that. Jesus is the one who does the miracle, but he wraps the disciples into this work. We must be about the work that the Father has sent us to do. In a very real sense, when you and I do ministry work or kingdom work, when we serve the Lord, we need to remember this. We are doing the Father's business. We are doing the business of the one who sent Jesus, who sent the disciples, who sent the apostles, and he sends us. And everything that we do in Christian service is the Father's business. And we do it. And we must work the works of him who sent us. Because we are the ones who have been left here to do the work. Now, what work specifically does Jesus ask you and I to do? you realize there are certain things that Jesus does that he does not ask us to join him in. You can probably think of a few of these things, right? He doesn't ask us to atone for sins by making an offering. He has done that. He doesn't ask us to join with him in, in pressing out the wine press of God's wrath upon his enemies at his second coming. He does that. He doesn't ask us to be interceding for his church at the right hand of the Father. Jesus does that, does, does that himself. There are some works which are his and his alone to perform, but there are some works that he asks us to be part of. And I think from the context, we can get an idea of what it is that Jesus has primarily in mind. Look at verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that, being a light and telling other people of the light and displaying the light, is something that you and I can have a part in. Right? Now this man was born blind. Jesus is the one who heals him. But he is saying to the disciples, there is a work that I do that you are involved in. And part of that work is displaying the light of God to the nations, displaying the light of God to the peoples. We participate with Christ when we join Him in being lights. When we preach the truth, when we proclaim the truth, when we share the truth, when we evangelize and we stand up for the truth, when we say, He is the light of the world, come unto Him all you who are in darkness. When we shine the light of truth on blind eyes, we are participating with Him in the work that He does. You and I cannot heal blind eyes, but we can shine the light of truth on them. You and I cannot resurrect dead sinners spiritually. We can't do that. But we can share with them the life-giving message. And in that way, we join Christ in doing the work that the Father has sent Him to do. Now, there is a balance that you and I must strike here. And I love how the Lord Jesus strikes it. Jesus understands that it is the Father's work that He is called to do. But who does the Father's work? Who does it? Does God do all of the work Himself or does He incorporate you and I into the work? He incorporates you and I into His work, right? We join with Him and partner with Him in doing the work. But we must never forget that it is the Father's work that we do. Who did what the Father sent him to do? Jesus did. But whose work was it? And who gets the honor and glory for it? The Father's work. And so the Father gets the honor and glory for it. If ever there was a man who has ever lived in the history of this world who deserved to receive honor and glory and credit for the work that he did, it was the Lord Jesus. But listen, if there was ever a man who was more selfless, there, there never was a man who was more selfless and who did the work and gave all of the honor to the Father than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you and I, mere sinners, have been incorporated into doing God's work and being about the business that He has called us to do, then you and I should never for a moment believe that we receive any honor for it or glory for it. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beforehand. When's the beforehand? Before you ever got saved, God prepared the works for you to do. So that every work you do is not your work. It's His work that He has appointed for you to do. Now who gets exhausted doing the work that the Father has sent us to do? Does God get exhausted? We do, right? We exert ourselves. We are the ones who do the work. We are the ones who stay up late at night. We are the ones who pray. We are the ones who labor. We are the ones who strive. But we must never forget that it is only because of His work in us that enables us to do the work that He has called us to do. And so we do His work. I was recognizing it's His work. I'm the one that labors. I get worn out, but He is the one who gets the glory for it. And if anything good ever happens because of you serving in any possible way, guess who gets the glory for that? Not you. No honor comes to us as servants. No matter what our role is, whether you sweep the floor here when we're done or whether you are preaching or teaching or sharing in Sunday school or leading music or whatever it is, if anything good ever happens because of anything done by any of God's people, it is only because God in His grace has enabled that good to be done. He has prepared that work beforehand, and he's strengthened his people to do that work. And so he receives all the honor and glory for that. Now there is a sense of urgency in the passage. We must be about the work that the Father has given us to do. And you're going to see in a moment why this sense of urgency. We must be about this work. It is ours to do, and we must work it. It's interesting to me. I did a search on the word work all the way through John's Gospel this last week. The word work, and it's kind of a predominant theme, it occurs 28 times in 21 chapters. So it comes up quite a bit all the way through John's Gospel, mostly used by Jesus. The very first time that Jesus ever uses the word work was back in chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well, actually speaking to the disciples after the woman at the well episode. In John 4.34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the very first time Jesus used the word work in John's Gospel. He said this, I am here to do the work of the one who sent me. The very last time that Jesus uses the word work in John's Gospel is John 17, verse 4, when He is praying to the Father and He says, I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now that is perfect fulfillment. I came here to do the work. And at the end of His ministry, He says, I have done the work. Everything that the Father has sent Me to do, I have done it. I have left nothing unfinished. He was the perfect servant who perfectly did all of the Father's will and perfectly fulfilled all that the Father gave Him to do. I came to do the work. At the end of his life and ministry, I have done the work, and then he went to the cross. Everything that the Father had appointed to him to do, he did, and he had to do it. And Jesus had a sense of urgency. Why? Because not only of the work that we have been committed to do or called to do, but second, because of the the time to which we have been allotted. Look at the end of verse four and the beginning of verse five. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now here's the sort of the interpretive question. What is the day and the night referring to? There is a sense of urgency here. We must do this. Right. The short answer to the question in verse 3. Now, the real issue is the work that we have been called to do. Don't focus on why did this happen, but focus on what must I do in light of what has happened with this man. So we must work these works, and there is a sense of urgency, because we only have the time allotted to us while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. So what does the day refer to, and what does the night refer to? Does the day refer to the whole period of time during his first coming, and now we are in the night? Is this the night time that Jesus is referring to when no one can work? I don't think that that's it, because guess what? We're working. So this is not the night when no one can work. I think that the application or the metaphor itself is is rather narrow and it is rather focused. And we get sort of a clue to it in verse 5. The metaphor that Jesus gives is one that the Jews would be familiar with. While it is day is the time when you can work. You know, there was a time, and you and I are so far removed from this, but there was a time, and there probably are still areas of the world where this is true. There was a time when the if you did work, it had to be done before nightfall because there were no sources of artificial light. Now we can work around the clock, right? The the, the sun goes down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and we turn, off the lo- turn on the lights, and we just keep working until evening. Some of us have nighttime jobs, and we work under artificial light constantly. We have factories that run around the cro- clock. We have cities that never sleep, they say. I know there are people in there that sleep, but the city itself never sleeps. There was a time when if you had work to do, you had to do it during the day because when the sun set, guess what? You went to bed. That's it. You were done working. The sun went down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You went down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And you stayed in bed and laid awake or did whatever or talked and visited until you fell asleep. There was a time when when night came, you could not work because having an artificial source of light was not economically feasible. So this is a this is a metaphor that the Jews would be familiar with. So what is the night and what is the day? Verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is referring to here... His presence in this world with the disciples in bodily form. While I am here, I am the light of the world. While I am here, I have work to do. That's the day. The time when I am here is my day. There is coming a night when no one can work. And it's not that Jesus, while he now that he has left, has brought night upon all of us. It's that each of us has a day and a night. The night is coming when no one can work. Each of us has a day. What is our day? Let me ask you this question. When can you serve the Lord? While you are alive. While you are here. Night is coming. What is your night? When are you no longer going to be able to serve the Lord? When you die. You realize that when you die, it's over. No more evangelism. No more giving. No more sharing the truth. No more sharing with your neighbors. No more encouraging the saints. No more bearing people's burdens. No more meeting people's needs. No more displays of compassion. No more opportunities to serve. When the night comes, you're done. That's it. Your opportunities to serve are gone. So while it is day, you must work the works of Him who sent you. Because when night comes, no one can work. And your night is coming. And my night is coming. My night is coming rather quickly. I'm starting to get the sense that life is a little bit shorter than I thought it was when I was 16 and 17 years old. Back when I was a kid, when I was younger, it was always the older folks who say this. I realize now that they weren't really older at all. Now that I've gotten older, one of the things I've learned is that the old people weren't really old back when I was young. I've learned that they weren't old at all. But the older people used to tell me, you know, life is seems like it, things take forever now, but there's the older you get, what? The faster time flies, right? That's what they said to me. And I, I always thought, well, it's not going to be that way for me. Well, now that I have passed 30, I realize that time is passing a lot more quickly than it did when I was 16. My night is coming, and your night is coming. That is where the sense of urgency comes from. As long as it's day, you and I have opportunities. But when night comes, no one can work any longer. That's it. If you die tonight, your opportunity to share the gospel is gone. You will never share the gospel again, ever, for all of eternity. You will rejoice in it. You will love it. You will praise God for it. You will bask in the light of the glory of that and the ramifications of that. But you will never have another opportunity to share the gospel with a lost person as long as you live. Only while it is day. Only while you are alive. Because once you die, it's over. And listen, every one of us is at a different spot in our day. Right? Every one of us is. And your spot in your day has nothing at all to do with your age and nothing at all to do with your health and your vitality. There are some of you who are weak and frail, and you have a lot more time left in your day to serve the Lord. You're just going to serve him in weakness and frailty. That's what God has apportioned for you. There are some of you who are young, and you think, oh, it's just sun is just now coming up. Listen, you might be, in fact, closer to the grave than the old person sitting in front of you who you think is closer to the grave than the banana peel itself. Because the amount of daylight that you have left to serve might be, by our reckoning, 12 hours. Might be 20 years. Might be 40 years. Life is short, isn't it? That's the point. As long as it's day, we can serve. And Jesus is saying, as long as I am here, I can do what the Father has called me to do here. But once I leave, I physically will not be here to do these things. So I must do them now. There is a sense of urgency there. Now, he is the God-man. We understand. He sits at the Father's right hand. His work here is not done. What he continue, what he started to do through the apostles, he continues to do through the church in many senses and in many ways. But the analogy that he's, he's giving is, is true nonetheless. While he is here physically, he had opportunity. That's the point of the passage. Look, this was for the glory of God. You need to be asking yourself, what does God want me to do in the light of this situation? While it's a day, I can serve. But my night is coming when my opportunities to serve are over. So I need to be about doing what the Father has given me to do and not be wasting my life doing things that the Father has not called me to do. All of us have all kinds of work that we do that have nothing to do with what God's called us to do. And and do you realize that your life is filled with things that just suck the time out of them? You start getting older and you start realizing this. I've been a I've been a Christian now for twenty five years. That means for fifteen of those years Oh, I'd say I was past thirty. I've been a Christian for twenty five years. <laughs> I've been a Christian for 25 years, for 15 of those years, which is nearly half of that time. I wasted that in rebellion and sin, and in ignorance and stupidity and darkness and blindness and, and wickedness. Half of, my, half of my life I have spent that, nearly half of my life. Of the 25 years that I have spent in Christ, I spent a good portion of that in having a lot of zeal but no knowledge, and all kinds of opportunities that I wasted in discussing things that I shouldn't have been discussing, arguing about things that didn't matter at all. In immaturity and, and, and spiritual needing discipled and needing to be fed and really not being productive at all spiritually. A lot of that 25 years I spent doing that. And then of the, of the remaining amount of time that I have had in the Lord, how much of it have I spent doing other things that have nothing to do with eternity whatsoever? Now what do I got left? Probably another 40 years of being what? Frustrated over the amount of time that I don't have to do the things that I want to do. So while it is day, I serve knowing my Night's coming and listen your night is coming. You realize 100 years from now this church will look a lot different than it does today. You can look around here today and guess what? Night is falling for every person in this room. There's a sense of urgency when we serve the Lord and we have to we have to live with that sense of urgency. Typically we fill our lives with all kinds of excuses. When you are young when you're 15 or 16 you think well you know I really just can't serve the Lord now I got stuff in school and I got homework and I got this that I got to do, and that team I'm part of, and this activity I got to go to, and I'm all part of that. Maybe when I get out of high school, and then you get into college, and you're interested in studying, and more homework, and then you get out of college, and you got a career, and you think to yourself, I'm starting this new career, I really don't have time for this, I'm trying to get established here, and get some seniority here, and so I'll do this. And, and then you get married, and you have the concerns of a wife, and, and uh, or a husband, and you're, you're working on your marriage, and you get that, and then kids show up, and man, if you think you didn't have any time before you got kids, wait till you have kids. Suddenly, Those little time black holes just suck every remaining bit. I mean, they're a joy, don't get me wrong, but they suck every remaining bit of time out of your day. And you have kids, and that goes on for 25 years, and then the kids leave, and you think to yourself, okay, now that the kids are gone, now we can catch up on our life, and and we can do some of the things we've never been able to do now. The kids are out of the home, we have a little bit more freedom, so we put off service and doing the things that God has called us to do, because now we can sort of get our lives balanced a little bit, and then guess what happens? Grandkids show up. Man, talk about now there's a multiplied little... Time, black holes that suck all of the remainings that just multiply exponentially. You got grandkids; and they got to be there for them, and you got to travel to see them. And you got—you thought you had ball games to be in, in to go to before you had grandkids. Just when you had kids, now you got grandkids, and all these things. And you think when well, the grandkids are a little bit older, and we're. But then my I, my man, I can't sit like I used to. I can't stand like I used to. My my body is breaking down, and I, my mind is not where it used to be. And now I'm getting now I'm retired, and I got all this time. But now I need to rest more, and I don't have the energy that I used to have. And I've served my time. Let's let the younger people in the church do it. That's what the younger people are thinking? Same thing you thought when you were twenty years old. That's how our lives typically go. We got daylight. And for some of you. The sun is setting and it's dropping quickly. I don't mean to be harsh, but it's the truth. My sun might be dropping quickly. Of my day, it could be coming to an end. I I realize that I could die before we ever get into the new facility. You know how many people have died before we ever got into the new facility? (laughs) A lot of people have died before we ever got into the new facility. I realize that could be me too. My son could be setting rather quickly. So what do we need to do? We need to be about the business that the father has given us to be about. Now there's a balance here. There's a balance. As long as we're in the world, we have the opportunity to be doing the things that he has given us to do. But there is a balance that we must strike and we, we should not be thinking to ourselves, okay, now I need to just, I need to, I need to take everything that I'm doing now for the Lord and I need to quadruple it. Now there are some people who have a problem saying no. There are other people who never say yes. And they're always waiting for an excuse to get in and do something. There is a balance between those two extremes. We want to be people who serve the Lord with our time, our talents, and our treasure, and offer to Him and have this sense of urgency, but we don't want to be so busy that we are neglecting our wives and our children or our husbands and our family and our concerns. And I'm not suggesting that we put all of those good things aside and we only be about the Lord's business and we only do spiritual things because it is possible for us to neglect the work of God to our families while we are busy doing the work of God to complete strangers. And listen, the needs of your wife or your husband and your children is, are just as noble and just as worthy and just as much the business of God as the needs of complete strangers. So we don't want to flop over on the other side. And yet at the same time, we never want to stay over here and just pistol whip ourselves every time we don't use our time wisely or we don't do what we could do. There, every day that I live, I realize I could have spent it differently. There's nobody in this room who has ever spent a day perfectly where you could say to yourself, today I have perfectly used every moment and every opportunity that God has brought my way. Nobody here has ever been able to say that. If you think you have ever had a perfect day when you have used it perfectly for the glory of God and taken every opportunity and used every moment perfectly to please the Father, you are are wrong. Now I would just ask you this question. Have you always, or any day of your life, have you prayed enough, memorized enough, read enough, learned enough, studied enough, served enough, prepared enough? Have you ever done that enough? The reality is that none of us can ever do that enough. There's only one person who perfectly used every opportunity and every moment of every day for the Father's glory and he could get to the end of his life and say, I have finished all that the Father has given to me to do. I have done it and done it perfectly. So we can't sit over here and pistol whip ourselves because I realize at the end of every day I could have studied more. I never feel adequately prepared for any sermon I've ever delivered in my life. I never feel adequately prepared for any ministry that I have ever done. I always feel I could prepare more. I could I could read more, I could study more, I could do more here, I could serve more. I've failed in some way, I've fallen short in some way, but this is where the gospel comes in. Because ultimately, God's favor does not rest upon any one of us because we have served enough. Do you realize that? Our favor rests upon uh, God's favor rests upon us why? Because of what Christ has done. And so we strike this balance. And here's the balance. We must feel the sense of urgency. And we must recognize that we we stand accepted in the Beloved because of what Christ has done. And my service does not bring me God's pleasure or bring me God's favor or bring me God's blessing. It is what Christ has done that has done that. They say, Jim, how do we strike the balance? Let me give you a formula. I'll give you the formula. You got a pencil? You write this down? There is no formula. There's no formula for it. You need to work that out with the Lord. Because that's going to look different for every person in this room. It's going to look different for every person in every Christian church. There's no formula. There's the balance. There are seasons of life when I simply cannot do this because I need to deal with this. And that's what being faithful to God is. Then there are seasons of life that we go through when we can be doing a lot more. And some when we can do a lot less. There's a balance. We strike that balance. And you need to work that out with the Lord. You need to walk through your life and your service with the Lord. Understanding this, every work that we do is the Father giving us that work. And we do it with a sense of urgency, knowing that we might never work that work again. The old Puritan preacher Richard Baxter used to say, I preach as though never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. Get that? I preach as though never sure to preach again. This might be my only opportunity. And so Baxter says, I preach as if I I, I might never preach again, and I preach as a dying man to dying men, realizing that for each of us, the sun is going down. So we are about the Lord's work with urgency. That's my challenge. A pattern? Five steps? A perfect formula? I can't offer you that. But I can tell you this, we need to find the balance between doing what God has called us to do and recognizing His work. And doing it with a sense of urgency, knowing that our time is short. And it's shorter than we think. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for the reminders that we have in your word that encourage us in these things. Again, we are thankful that you have not given to us uh, formulas, patterns to follow, rules and laws and, and uh, point lists, bullet point lists. You have simply called us to be about your business. We know that that looks differently for each and every one of us that is here So we pray, God, that by Your grace and through the work of Your Spirit and conviction brought about by Your Word, that You would remind each of us of what that looks like, to be about Your business, to keep our priorities straight. Give us grace to do that. Help us to think of everything that we do in terms of Your glory and in terms of eternity. And recognize that we are busy with so many things that are so pointless they will not outlast our lives, let alone this creation. And give us opportunity and grace and strength to be involved in those things which are truly of eternal significance and value. You would strengthen us for those things and give us a sense of urgency. Thank you, Father, for this reminder that our time is short. A lot of times we forget that. So we pray, as Moses did, that you would teach us to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom, and that you would confirm the work of our hands. For it is only in your name and by your grace that this is even possible. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.